This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and I will be your host. This is episode 299, entitled Defining Gnosticism. Yes, we're moving on to a new series that's going to be exploring Gnosticism, the related subjects associated with Gnosticism, and the ways in which the New Testament writers interact with opponents that seem to suggest to at least some people Gnostic theology and tendencies. So hopefully you are looking forward to this new topic. So today we're going to be focusing specifically on the subject of Gnosticism and trying to define what that term actually means. Maybe you already have a good idea of what Gnosticism is and who the Gnostics are. Of course, the word Gnostic, or the word Gnosis, comes from the Greek noun Gnosis, meaning knowledge. Of course, the related verb, yonosko, means to know. So this has to do with some sort of knowledge that people possess. Maybe you've even been told that Gnostics are the opponents mentioned in several books of the New Testament. Older scholarship has suggested that such books as the Gospel of John, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, the Pastoral Epistles, and first and second John oppose Gnosticism in some manner or other. Now, the problem comes when someone is pressed to give a clear definition of what Gnosticism is or what Gnostic Christians believed. Far too often, assumptions are made concerning the origins of the Gnostic Christians concerning who their leaders actually are, what sort of documents can we even attribute to Gnostic authors, what actually were their social practices, and where their centers of worship were. There are a lot of question marks concerning these fundamental questions. and A lot of people make assumptions on the certainty of the data when in fact there is a lot of questions that really have been left unanswered. So I created a poll online, maybe as a listener you saw me create this poll, and I asked in the poll if the following characteristics would be beliefs that a Gnostic or an adherent of Gnosticism would hold, and I listed eight particular beliefs. Number one, creation is bad and evil. Number two, the maker or the creator of this bad creation is not a good God, but an evil God. Number three, procreation and sex are evil. Number four, human beings are in need of salvation from this bad and evil God. Number five, Jesus the Savior, who brings salvation, does not really possess a legitimate human body. Number six, a rejection of the future bodily resurrection. Number seven, the fact that the Godhead has a 
pantheon of gods. There are multiple gods, not just one single god. And number eight, the creator is someone other than God the Father. So I listed these eight characteristics, and I asked in the poll if someone who believed these eight things is actually a Gnostic or an adherent to Gnosticism, and the poll's results indicated that an overwhelming opinion indicated an affirmative answer. Yes, a person who believes these eight things and teaches these eight things would be a bona fide Gnostic. But is that really the case? Can we come up with a more concrete definition of what Gnostics believed than by doing a random internet poll? Or is the subject of Gnosticism far more complex than many have been led to believe? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. First point I want to look at is looking at the document that is called the Apocryphon of John. Not to be confused with the Apocalypse of John, this is the Apocryphon of John. Maybe you've never heard of this particular work. So it is a second century document, and most scholars who are interested in the subject of Gnosticism and what Gnostic Christians believed will look to this particular document, the Apocryphon of John, as the gold standard of what Gnostics believed. And in the collections of text that we have uncovered and dug up that have been deemed to be Gnostic in character, among those collections, the Apocryphon of John is usually the very first book in those collections, suggesting that ancient people held the Apocryphon of John in some sort of place of primacy. Now, this particular approach for categorizing is what is called the typological approach. And the typological approach is where somebody is going to group documents and their authors together based on similar types of beliefs. They'll look at one document, they'll suggest that the writer of this document believed X, Y, and Z, and they'll look at another document and they'll say, well, that person also believes X, Y, and Z. Let's group them together. That approach of categorizing is called the typological approach. Now, when you read the Apocryphon of John, which you're able to do, you can Google the document, you can read it in a variety of languages. The highest God, according to this author, is called the invisible spirit. And it's quite clear that the invisible spirit is actually in a category that is above divinity. He is far greater than even the category of divinity. Now, this invisible spirit is also called in the document, the Father. And the first thought or contemplation that the invisible spirit had ended up stepping forth out of the invisible spirit as a separate being. And this being is named Barbello. Barbello, according to the Apocryphon of John, has several other names, including the first human, image, first thought, providence, and even mother. So Barbello, in this particular document, functions as the mediator of salvation with humanity. Now, Barbello, being a mother, gives birth to another being, and that being is naturally called the child. 
So now we have a family. We've got the father, which is in a category that's far above divinity. We have this emanated divine being called the mother, and that mother bears a child. So we have three gods in this particular pantheon. And now that we have a family, the creation of humanity can take place. Now, the first human being created is not Adam, but a figure named Adamas. So it's not quite Adam, but it's something related to that, Adamas. Now, Adamas has a son named Seth. And this creation is considered, at least at this part of the story, at this part of the narrative, to be at peace. It is considered to be a creation that is ordered and has purpose. It's a good creation. However, there is another divine attribute that appears, that emanates out of this pantheon. And this divine attribute is named wisdom. Wisdom is unfortunately quite arrogant and unruly, despite having come from God. Now, wisdom takes it upon herself to contemplate and imagine, not unlike what the invisible spirit initially did, but wisdom goes beyond without asking permission to contemplate and imagine, and she does not receive permission to do so from the invisible spirit. And this is considered in the narrative to be a bad thing. And unfortunately, the contemplation of wisdom results in wisdom having a child. But this child is not a good child. This child is described as imperfect and ugly. And the name of this child is Ildabaoth. I-A-L-D-A-B-A-O-T-H. Ildabaoth. And when Ildabaoth proceeds forth, it says, quote, I am God, and there is no God besides me, quoting from the book of Isaiah. And according to the Apocryphon of John, it's this particular God, Ildabaoth, which is the God of Genesis, this ugly and imperfect God. Now, upon realizing her mistake, wisdom feels remorse, she repents, and she's actually placed on some sort of probation by the other gods. So we got Ildabaoth, which functions as the creator in Genesis, and Ildabaoth creates Adam, not Adamas, that was the first creation. But Adam turns out to be lifeless and motionless. It's not a good creation. So we can see that because this particular god is bad, imperfect, and ugly, that the creation that comes forth from this god is also going to be bad, motionless, lifeless, without purpose. And so a solution is reached. We're going to put the divine spark into Adam. And this divine spark is drawn by the god Ildabaoth. But what happens is that this makes Adam alive, luminous, and glowing. In fact, this regenerated and glowing Adam is far more intelligent than he is supposed to be. And this is not what Ildabaoth wants. So Ildabaoth tries to take Adam's luminous spiritual power away from him and to give it to the woman, to give it to Eve. However, Adam sees Eve 
and he has a moment of awakening, this transcendent awakening. And so in response to this, the heavenly powers invent, quote, the power of fate, end quote. And the power of fate enslaves humanity with sin. It enslaves humanity with fear and with ignorance. And according to the Apocryphon of John, its soteriology, human beings can be saved only if they hear and understand this entire mythical narrative. And this would explain what it really means to be a human being, and it would explain sin and why there's this inner longing of some human beings. Now, once these human beings have been enlightened with the knowledge of this mystical narrative, then humans will have the ability to resist their evil creator and join the real divine beings when they die. And of course, when they die, they are leaving their bodies behind. Now, to be fair to the Apocryphon of John, it never uses the word Gnostic or the term Gnosticism to describe itself or to describe its theology. That phrase or those phrases do not appear anywhere within the Apocryphon of John. But scholars deem this document to be the standard Gnostic document that tells us a lot about Gnostic theology. There are some authors that will actually give their definition of what Gnostic theology is and is pulled directly out of the Apocryphon of John. So this is a major player in the ongoing scholarly discourse of what Gnosticism is. Okay, so there we have one example. Let's move to another example. Point number two is we're going to look at Justin the Gnostic. Who is Justin the Gnostic? Well, Justin the Gnostic should not be confused with Justin Martyr. These are two different Justins. Now, Justin the Gnostic has his theology preserved in quotations by Hippolytus, who wrote towards the end of the 2nd century and the beginning of the 3rd century. But Justin the Gnostic lived in the 2nd century. So Justin, unlike the Apocryphon of John, is in fact directly called a Gnostic by those heresiologists who preserve Justin's theology. Now in Justin's understanding, there were three gods. There was a male god named the Good, another male named Elohim, and a female goddess named Eden. The first god, the Good, is quite interesting because this language in theology is drawn directly from Platonic philosophy. And if you have a copy of Plato's Republic, you can look in Book 6, paragraph 508 through 509, and you can see what Plato had to say about the good being the greatest godly principle. So the first god, according to Justin the Gnostic, is called the good, and he possesses foreknowledge of all things. The second god, Elohim, does not possess this foreknowledge, at least initially in the story. And because of this, he actually doesn't even know of the existence of the good. But this is all going to change when the good tells Elohim, quote, sit at my right hand, which is a clear reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. Let's focus on the third god. The third god, which is a goddess named Eden. She also lacks foreknowledge. 
but she has an interesting appearance. From the waist up, she looks like a young woman, but from the waist down, she actually looks like a snake. Now, the creation of the world takes place as a result of a marriage between heaven and earth. And because heaven and earth are good, this actually makes creation good. And it's associated with procreation and sex, which is also described to be good within the theology of Justin the Gnostic. So because creation was brought about through the procreation of heaven and earth, that would mean that sex and procreation among human beings is also considered to be good. Now, Elohim and Eden together begat a bunch of angels, 24 in fact, 12 belonging to each. So we got 12 belonging to Elohim and 12 angels belonging to Eden. Now what is interesting to note is the name of a few of these. Satan is the name of one of these angels. Baruch is the name of one of these angels. And there's another angel named Naas, which seems to be drawing upon the Hebrew word for snake, which is Nahash. So these three, Satan, Baruch, and Naas, are three of the angels among the 24 that are begotten by Elohim and Eden. Now the angel Baruch ends up being in the story, the tree of life, and the angel Naas, which turns out to be an evil angel, functions as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it turns out that Adam and Eve, the first human beings, are not the result of the creative activity of any of these three gods. It's actually these angels who create Adam and Eve. That's a very interesting twist. And into the first of these humans is placed parts of the God. And this is an important detail. Some of the spirit of Elohim and some of the soul of Eden is put to the insides of these initial human beings. So they get the spirit of Elohim and the soul of Eden. Now these angels end up influencing the existence of a variety of plagues, famines, and other evil things within creation. And one day Elohim decides that he's going to ascend to a higher heaven in order to kind of check out creation to see how things are going on earth. And he witnesses the bad things that are taking place and Elohim wants to wipe out the earth and destroy creation and to take back the spirit that he gave to humanity. However, the first God, the good, does not allow this to take place because this would be an evil act. And of course, the good can't allow evil to take place. It's also interesting that this God is called the good because Jesus said there's only one who is good. I think that's kind of an interesting point. Back to our story. Eventually, Eden gets upset that her husband, Elohim, has kind of ascended to this higher heaven and left her, and he's just kind of nowhere to be found. He's the husband that ran away, and she gets upset, and she is angry, she's very sad, and so she tries to get her revenge on her absent husband, Elohim, by sending some of her angels, including Naas, to bring adultery, divorce, and punishment upon human beings. Now Elohim learns of this plan by Eden, and he's going to send his own angel to fix the problem. He sends the angel Baruch. And Baruch is the angel that actually approaches the 12-year-old Jesus, 
who in the story is described as the son of Joseph and Mary. He is not described, at least at the age of 12, as the son of God. The angel Baruch tells this young Jesus all that took place from the beginning, the entire narrative and mythology, and the angel commissions Jesus to tell others about the good and about Elohim. And since Elohim gave his spirit to human beings, and Elohim is the father of human beings, then Jesus understands himself as the son of God at this particular time, which would be an adoptionistic Christology. If Elohim functions as the father, then Jesus is adopted as the son of this Elohim. But his true father was Joseph, according to this particular story. Now, the evil angel Naas is the one that eventually gets Jesus killed and crucified on the cross. And the death of Jesus results in him yielding up his spirit to the Father, namely to Elohim, the second God, just like we see in Luke 23:46, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And at this point, the theology understands Jesus ascending up to the good while his soul and body remain on the earth. Now, that's what we see from Justin the Gnostic. So if we employ the typological approach and we compare Justin the Gnostic with the Apocryphon of John, we actually can notice that these two documents are actually far more different than they are alike. Let me go down the list. Human beings are created by a bad god in the Apocryphon of John, but they're created by angels in Justin the Gnostic. Well, what is creation? Well, creation is a bad thing in the Apocryphon of John, but it's a good thing in Justin the Gnostic. Who is God? Well, God is a bad God in the Apocryphon of John, but it's a good God in Justin the Gnostic. The names of God are different. Not just God, but the gods. So we have the invisible spirit, we've got Barbello, we've got the child, we've got wisdom, we've got Ildbadoth in the Apocryphon of John, but then in Justin we only have three. We have the good Elohim and a goddess named Eden. Who are the first humans? Well, depends on which document you're reading. In the Apocryphon of John, the first human is Adamas, but in Justin the Gnostic it is Adam, and these are two distinguished figures. What about sin? Well, the enslaving power of fate to keep humans from understanding their true nature and understanding about the divine spark, that is what brings about sin according to the Apocryphon of John. But sin in Justin the Gnostic is really just this act of revenge by Eden against her husband Elohim who's left her. So those are very different. What about marriage? Well, sex and procreation are bad in the Apocryphon of John, but because sex and procreation represent heaven and earth bringing about creation, which is a good thing, then they are considered to be good by Justin the Gnostic. And my point is that when you look at these two documents, they are far more different than they are alike. For the major document that people think is a representation of what Gnostic theology is, differs quite considerably from a guy who is specifically called a Gnostic. And this is raising some problems with our definition of Gnosticism. Let's look at a third 
example. We're going to look at point number three, which is Ptolemy, who is a student of Valentinus. Who is Valentinus? So Valentinus moved to Rome in the year 140, and he set up a school. Ptolemy was one of his best-known students, and Irenaeus, a second-century church father, heresiologist, talks a lot about Ptolemy. Irenaeus thinks that Ptolemy is kind of this grand standard of Valentinian theology. So this particular approach is going to be a little bit different from the typological approach. This approach is called the genealogical approach. And this approach is going to link figures to earlier persons who are supposedly Gnostic. So if Valentinus formed a school of Gnostic teachings in Rome, then naturally his students would be categorized as Gnostic. That's the logic of this particular approach. And this was quite common in the understanding of the heresiologists. Many of them would like to trace Gnosticism to a first century figure named Simon Magus, who appears in the book of Acts, but you don't get the impression from the book of Acts that he's a Gnostic, but that was kind of the general understanding by many of these heresy hunters. So who is God according to Ptolemy, student of the Valentinian school? Well, there are actually two gods. There's a male god and a female god. The male god is named pre-beginning, pre-father, and the deep. The female goddess is named thought, grace, and silence. Now, they give birth to many divine figures. They give birth to mind, which is also called the only begotten, and they give birth to a figure called truth. And then mind, by himself, you could say he's minding his own business, brings about two more, logos and life. And then those two, logos and life, produce two more, human and church. And so now we have eight total. We've got the male God, we've got the female God, we've got mind, truth, logos, life, human, and church. And so from this eight, they produce 22 more, bringing the total up to 30, eight plus 22. And these 30 are called aeons. And collectively, the 30 are called the pleroma, which is a Greek noun for fullness. Now, the last of these created aeons is a female figure called wisdom. And she, very similar to what we saw in the Apocryphon of John, is impatient. And she desires to know and to contemplate the Father far more fully. But she doesn't have patience. And her lack of patience led to some speculations that were futile, resulting in wisdom actually splitting into two a higher wisdom, and a lower wisdom. And the lower wisdom is given a very specific name in this document. It's Akamoth, A-C-H-A-M-O-T-H, Akamoth. Now, mind is now going to bring forth another couple. Guess what? The name of this couple is Christ and the Holy Spirit. All right? And Christ and the Spirit have a purpose of bringing together all of the aeons in order to redeem this lower wisdom, Akamoth. And now there's not just one Christ, there's actually a second Christ. There are now two Christ figures. And the first Christ, 
actually sends a second Christ. And the second Christ is effectively understood in soteriology for Ptolemy as the Savior. The second Christ is the Savior. And he is sent into creation along with a bunch of angels. And his purpose is to redeem the lower wisdom. And as he redeems the lower wisdom, her passions and her longings become condensed. And those passions actually become the substance that constitutes the physical material that is used in creation. So her passions become the matter out of which creation comes into being. So this lower wisdom actually shifts into forming the soul elements of what is called a lower demiurge. And this lower demiurge is also described as an angel. And it's this angelic demiurge who functions as the maker of the created realm. So this creator demiurge slash God turns out to be ignorant of the pre-father, but despite the fact that it's ignorant, it's not actually an evil God. And so this demiurge actually claims to be the only creator, quoting specifically Isaiah 45 verse 5, which says, I am God, apart from me there is no one. Now it says that out of ignorance, because there actually is a higher God, there's a variety of other aeons, and there's particularly the pre-father. Now this creator demiurge is the one who creates the devil, and the devil is described as the world ruler of darkness. And the creator demiurge also creates evil spiritual forces, and they're described with language from Ephesians 6.12. But in an ironic twist, the devil has more knowledge about the things above than the creator demiurge has. This creates a problem. Now, human beings are basically created as tripartite beings. They have flesh that's actually made from matter. They have a soul that actually comes from this creator demiurge. And they have a spirit that comes from the lower wisdom, Akamoth. And when the Savior came into the created realm, he took two of these three. He took the spirit from lower wisdom, and he took the soul from the creator. But the Savior did not take on flesh. He was actually immaterial. He was a soul-body composition that was nevertheless visible. People could see him. He was able to suffer, but he certainly was not a real genuine human being. Now, since human beings are made up of these three parts, this also ends up being a reflection of three types of human beings. So we have the spirit, we have the soul, and we have this sort of material flesh, okay? And so the first type of human beings are called the spirituals. And these spirituals were destined for salvation because of their spiritual nature. That's the first kind. They're the highest rank in this caste. The middle group is called the soulish group. And these are the ones that have to be ascetic and doers of good works in order to be saved. So they have the possibility of salvation, but they have to perform good works and function ascetically. And then you have the third group called the materials. And these are the group 
of human beings that have no hope of salvation. There's nothing they can do about it. You've got one group that's destined for salvation, a middle group that could achieve salvation if they do enough good things, and you've got a third group that can't be saved no matter what they do. So Ptolemy and his understanding of Valentinian teachings is understood by many people as a Gnostic. But Ptolemy sounds nothing like the Apocryphon of John. And he doesn't sound like Justin the Gnostic either. The point that I'm making here is that when we look specifically and we read the primary sources the best that we can, the differences among these three major players far outweigh the similarities. They have different concepts of God, different concepts of humanity, different concepts of salvation, of sin, of sex, of creation. It's just it's far more different than they are the same. Now, there's a fourth figure I want to look at, and this is going to be based on that initial poll that I described at the beginning of this episode. I asked the question, would a person who believes that creation is bad, the maker of this bad creation is an evil God, procreation and sex are bad, human beings are in need of salvation from an evil God, the Savior Jesus doesn't possess a real human body, there's a rejection of the future bodily resurrection, the existence of multiple gods, and that the creator is someone other than God the Father, would this person be considered a Gnostic? And in the poll, almost everybody voted yes. However, these eight descriptions describe someone whom scholars do not think is a Gnostic. The person who believes and taught these things in multiple churches is a second century figure named Marcion. Marcion believed and taught all of these things, and yet no scholar thinks that Marcion is a Gnostic. But he seems to hold beliefs, and he was teaching them in a variety of churches, and people think that these beliefs belong to Gnostic Christians. And this, again, demonstrates the problem with the definition of Gnosticism. Gnosticism gives a definition that some who clearly are not Gnostic Christians believe. Marcion seems to fit this, and yet no scholar thinks that Marcion is a Gnostic. And I'm not saying that he should be considered a Gnostic. But if we have a definition with these sort of problems, then we have a major flaw with our definition. And this is why scholars have suggested that we need to abandon the term Gnosticism, because it's a term that we can't define adequately We can't look at a particular document and say this is Gnostic, and we can't use it in a variety of these categorizing methods like the genealogical approach or the typological approach. So if scholars are suggesting that we abandon the term Gnostic and Gnosticism, where are we left? What should we do with these various authors? Well, the scholars who used to categorize the persons as Gnostics or adherents of Gnosticism, note that people do so based on these two approaches. The genealogical approach, where someone is labeled a Gnostic because their former teacher is a Gnostic, like Ptolemy, the student of Valentinus. Or they look at it from a typological approach, where certain shared characteristics are identified as Gnostic, and that's how we can know what writings are actually Gnostic when we compare one with another. But there are problems with both of these approaches because 
the documents that they look at actually disagree on more points than they agree on. They differ on how many gods there are. They differ on what the names of the gods are, whether the creator god is good or evil, whether the creator god is actually a god or angels, whether sex and marriage is good or bad, what happens to the body when somebody dies. Now, most people have in their mind what they think are the characteristics of a Gnostic, if they're involved in this field of study, but Marcion taught all of these things, and no scholar thinks that he's a Gnostic. And so several modern scholars have argued that the term Gnosticism can't be legitimately defined, and because it has so much baggage, it needs to be abandoned. We need to jettison that term. If we can't agree on what a term means, then the term is unhelpful. So instead of identifying people and documents based on a genealogical approach, who is a disciple of whom, or from a typological approach, do they believe certain things like this other guy that we think is bad, scholars are now suggesting that there be a recognition that these varied authors have been influenced by middle Platonic philosophical thought. Now granted, so did many of the church fathers like Origen, Justin Martyr, and Clement of Alexandria. They were just adopting the high-level, sophisticated, philosophical approach in order to discuss these things with other people. So it wasn't just quote-unquote Gnostics, I can't think of a better term for it, uh, that were adopting Middle Platonism. There were many early Christians that were doing this, and they thought it was okay. I think there's a problem with that, but it's interesting to see that many early Christians were okay with adopting Middle Platonism to describe their beliefs. So scholars are suggesting that it's better to describe these documents as people that are influenced by Middle Platonic philosophy. There seems to be a mixing of Middle Platonism with diverse strands of biblical elements, whether that's from the Hebrew Bible or from the New Testament. And that seems to be the common thread among these writers and documents. Furthermore, there are two less problematic approaches that we could use to identify persons or groups. And the first one is looking at how they self-identify. Does a person say that they are a Gnostic? Now, this is different than someone accusing someone of being a Gnostic, but there are a few select people who actually do describe themselves as Gnostics. And actually, there are two Christians who describe themselves as Gnostics, but they think that that term is a positive term. They think that Gnostic means some sort of Christian intellectual. So that, again, uh, makes it interesting in how we define that particular term. So I think it's better for us to look at how people self-identify and to respect that. And also, we should be able to give attention to the location from which someone is writing. So if someone is writing from Rome, let's talk about that. If someone is writing from Antioch, let's talk about that. Or if someone is writing from Alexandria, those are kind of three major hubs of early Christian activity in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. So I think these factors, looking at how someone self-identifies, from the location that they are actually writing and noting the common thread of Middle Platonism mixed with diverse strands of biblical elements 
are better ways of categorizing these groups that scholars have formally described as Gnostics. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we explore First John, looking closely at who the opponents are and what precipitated the writing of the letter. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us absolutely for free by subscribing online, giving us an honest review, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the episode description for a link to donate. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.